Well, can you believe it? We are at the end, literally, of Ecclesiastes. Thank you so much for just hanging in there and staying with me as we went through this very unusual book. Uh, let me have prayer, and then we'll try to have a practical wrap-up here together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the way that you care for us. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that in this world that is so difficult that you care for your children. And we thank you for the main message of this book. And we pray that as we wrap it up that you would help me to share practically, uh, help me not to get lost in just material, but help it to be practical to the folks who are listening. And again, thank you uh, that you are so faithful uh, to your word, to your people, and thank you for who you are. Uh, be with us now as we try to wrap this up together, and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. My goal is to look at um, maybe four things from the book that are just so very obvious that everybody will be able to see it. Uh, so that we can remember the book long time from now, down the road, uh, so that we'll be able to bring it back to mind. And the first thing is this. As the book opens, we hear this awful cry of anguish. Uh, we have uh, Solomon expressing this great despair. Um, life is meaningless. Uh, there's no reason uh, for things that happen in life. There's no control. There's no real value. And he is completely filled uh, with despair. If we were able to transport our technology in the 21st century <clears throat> back into Solomon's day and have him create a drama of this to dramatize it, um, it'd be pretty hard to listen to because the anguish that he feels and is trying to convey is really very deep-seated and it's very intense. Uh, he feels empty, he is exhausted, and it is this cry of anguish that really fills the book. Anybody who reads Ecclesiastes will come away with this. This book is built <clears throat> on the sadness of life that Solomon is trying to express here. And he makes it clear it's a sadness that belongs not just to him, but everybody feels it. And so as he begins, he just blurts this out, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and he continues that throughout the book for the most part. So it's pretty easy to see that that is one of the main things that's happening here as he expresses this despair and hopelessness. So we got that message, but so what do we do with it? How are we to understand it? Well, let me do this a couple of ways. On the screen, in its broadest scope, we know the Bible teaches us that there are in life what we call as trials, unexpected hardships and tragedies that come not only to believers, but those who uh, are not 
uh, walking with God, they have no relationship with God. Trials, hardship in life, uh, that's just common to all men because of what this world is. And I have on the PowerPoint, Job, Job made the statement that uh, as sparks fly upward, uh, men are born unto trouble. We're just going to have hard days, hard moments in life. Uh, Jesus says, in this world you shall have tribulation. It's a word that means pressure that really squeezes in on us. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks about the sufferings of this present world. And in that context, he's not talking about uh, Christian suffering because of their faith. He's talking about every other kind of suffering. You go back there and read that passage. It, it is inclusive. It's physical suffering. It's emotional suffering. It's mental suffering. It's family suffering. Um, it just includes everything. Uh, in Galatians, he refers to this present evil world, the world that stands against us. So we know that in this world, uh, there are times when people just have difficulty. That's just what life is like in this world. And it can be so very innocent, and it can be so very immature. Thinking of some of our kids, they go to school, maybe they're in early high school, and uh, they, they're going to say something. They want to be kind of funny at schools. So they want to be uh, kind of um, in with their group. And so uh, the teenager says something and hoping to be funny, and it comes out all wrong, and everybody laughs at him or her. Completely backfires on him. Well, he leaves, goes home. He's, at the end of the day, he's totally embarrassed. What are my friends thinking of me now? Nobody understands. Nobody cares. You know how that snowballs. And, and then later in life, as a young man or a young woman, they begin to go to, to a school or they create a profession and they get a job and it doesn't work out. They have plans and that doesn't work out. Relationships, that doesn't work out. We have a way of growing into difficulty and we call them trials. And uh, that's just a part of life. That's not what Solomon is talking about. Solomon is not talking about a moment here or there where we have difficulty. Uh, he's talking about looking at life and he is stuck here in this anguish. And the reason that Solomon is doing this is because he is portraying the person who has dismissed God. The reason that Solomon is having so much anguish with life is because he is looking at life as if there is no God. It's entirely on him. And a major purpose of this book, Solomon is seeking to create an awareness of life. Uh, what happens in life? When people dismiss God, he wants people to wake up to what life will be for them, or for many of them, what it is already for them, when people dismiss God. That is a major purpose of this book, to create an awareness of what life will be like if people dismiss God. 
I have this. You can't get ahead by leaving God behind. Uh, and that's exactly what he's saying. So there's the book. We see the anguish. We understand what he's trying to do. Don't dismiss God. Now let's just back up a little bit. The most important thing we can do for our lives personally, for our homes, is to stay close to God. That's very obvious. That's one of the things that we should take away from this book. That's why in the end, um, the conclusion, hear the matter, the whole matter, this is all of it, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, and he's working toward that as a goal, but that is probably the, the biggest lesson that Solomon wants people to take away. Um, you, we have to be careful to stay close to God. How you do that, how I do that, uh, others do it. Uh, there are different ways. People use music, they use church, they use friends, they use their Bible devotions, they use Christian service. More than activity, it's, it's a reminder that we need to keep our hearts close to God. I think that's one of the reasons why as parents, when you have kids growing up, at the right time, maybe encourage them, say something like this, you know, kids, the reason we go to church and the reason we want you to go to church is because life does not work without God. God is good. He's wonderful. He's, he's taken great care of us. We should thank Him for it all the time. We should be thankful for what He's done. The last thing we can do is we don't want to pretend that he's not there. We don't want to forget him. We just don't want to do that. We can't forget that, forget him. In practical ways of reminding our kids that although the world acts as if God's not there, we can't. He is a real person. He has been good to us. He is our creator, the creator of the whole heavens and earth. And he asks us to trust him. But when life does not work, well, sometimes it's not just a momentary trial. Sometimes it, it's because people have made a decision that they're going to do life on their own and they don't need God. That never works. That's one of the first things that we're to see when, uh, when we look at this. So we, we can see that. I think it's pretty practical, pretty obvious to all of us that uh, the book, we have this cry of anguish. We know why. Uh, Solomon, in his lifestyle, has determined he, is, he doesn't need God. And he's reminding us that this is what life is like when people dismiss God. We get that. But what do we do with that? How are we to react to that kind of <clears throat> anguish? Well, what did Solomon do? I think a good question, what did Solomon do? When we open the book, he has this expression of anguish and grief and despair <clears throat> that will continue throughout the book. But in the last part of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, he tells us that he is now going to look at life. He is going to pursue particular things. He's going to find out what makes it work. And then when he has all the answers, he will have a meaningful life. 
And so what we find, we entitled in chapter 2, Solomon's pursuit uh, of pleasure or meaning, Solomon's pursuit of meaning. And I have on the uh, PowerPoint the things that he was pursuing, things that he put uh, in his sights. He wanted to really uh, dive deeply into these things for satisfaction and meaning, pleasure, accomplishment, significance, <clears throat> and money. He talks a lot about that. And it reminds us, just noticing what he does, he's acting out a part. People who dismiss God are convinced that if they can just do the right thing, they can make their world good and push away the anguish. They're convinced. And so they work hard to create a life that will bring meaning to them and bring them hope. Uh, and it's it's very obvious that people who do dismiss God fall into the same traps that Solomon has listed here, thinking, I can do this, and that life can somehow be arranged and rearranged and helped so that they don't have to deal with uh, anguish and despair. They can have a meaningful life. And these, these four things are incredible distractions to people when they think about building or how to build a meaningful life or find meaning. And it becomes a driving force for people today. And I don't know how else to say that except when people dismiss God they are totally convinced that if they just do the right thing, their life will be fine. And off they are and running. And they pursue these things. And remember the word vanity refers to vapor or a fog. Um, we talked about the Golden Gate Bridge and how the fog sometimes will roll in off the bay and coming down the streets. And it looks real, it's pretty. and People, kids will go out and try to grab a handful of it only to find out that when they do that, there's nothing there. And that's what people do to themselves. They chase dreams that will never become real. Uh, they fantasize. They hope. They're always reaching out. Um, I'm not sure that people understand uh, just how much this has a control of them. Um, yesterday, I heard that mayor of New York City, um, uh, the mayor uh, de Blasio, made the statement that because of the COVID, that New York City has a lot of problems they're going to have to try to deal with. One of them is education and some of the minority communities. And he made the statement, and he says, if we're going to fix this, he says, there has to be a redistribution of wealth. And that's the phrase that he used a couple of times, a redistribution of wealth. And I'm not trying to be political here. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, downplay the needs of inner cities at all. But what I am saying is, in his mind, get a little bit of money and throw it in there, and that's going to fix everything. And people are like that. If I can just do something, if I can just throw something in there, it'll help, and the problem will go away. Uh, if I get a better job, that'll make my life better. If I get more money and just can hang on to it, that's, uh, that's what will help uh, my life. 
sometimes it gets pretty difficult. People get drastic. I need another spouse. I need another partner. I can't wait till the kids get out. When the kids get out, it'll be much better. I have so much responsibility in my life. When some of these responsibilities are just taken care of, it'll be better. And they're always reaching out, trying to figure out what do I have to do to make my life better. Uh, the point is there's nothing that we can do to take total control of our life and to create it so that it's good, all of this without God. It doesn't work like that. God made us for himself. He is good. He can care for us. He can create a wonderful life for us. But for men to feel that they can set God aside and take care of everything on their own, it just, it just won't work. And that's why when Solomon gets to the end of his pursuits in chapter 2, he has even more turmoil because none of it worked. He sought to do specific things. He accomplished everything he wanted to do in these areas of pleasure, accomplishment, significance, money. But in the end, it didn't create the meaning that he had thought, that he had hoped. And it lets us know that we cannot control our life by ourselves. We cannot create by our own efforts meaning and purpose. We can't do that. And to take it one step further, now in chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, he lets us know that, that as people look at life, it's obvious from his observations that there is nothing that men can control. Certainly in chapter 3, a life is totally out of control. There's a time for this, a time for that. Uh, a time where you experience this, a time where this happens. And we talked about when life is against us, when life is unpredictable, it's unreliable, it's, it's unfair, it's uncertain, it's unmanageable. He was letting people know that life will never be able to be controlled by us. We can't control life. And in the end of chapter 3 and the chapter 4, it's people that are against us. People, we saw, positions of significance and power that abuse that power in the courts of law or because of their positions. They, they serve themselves and not others. And that's unfortunately a part of the world. And we are stuck. The point is, there is no way possible for people to build meaning and purpose in their lives by setting God aside or by thinking that they can do it themselves. So the question is, how are we going to do it? How are we going to find meaning and purpose in life? Well, I think one of the things to, to understand what's happening here in this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. He's building a case and he wants us to see that we cannot do it on our own. We really do need God. For the men who are listening, uh, uh, thinking of men, since I know men more than I know ladies, I am not one of you, uh, but men, there are times where it's good for us to verbalize, to say out loud in our prayer time, God, I need your help in this area. God, I need you to stand 
with my wife or with our kids right now, my son, my daughter. Uh, I need you to help me with work. If we are to be successful in our work, in our walk with God, we have to realize that we are dependent upon Him. So let's be humble, not be like the bull in the china shop. And it's okay that we don't have all the answers, but keeping our hearts close to God will help us more than anything else. God, thank you that you're there. Thank you that I can rely upon you, but I need you. I can't do this myself. I know men feel a lot of responsibility taking care of their families and doing different things uh, for their kids, uh, provision, uh, time and everything in the world. It's just hard to balance all of that, like it is for ladies too. Uh, but men, you don't have to work it out all by yourself, okay? Now, something else that Solomon does is building this case, practical applications. We see the anguish and we understand why it's there. We understand that man's natural response is to try to make his world better. He's going to create it himself the way he wants, uh, thinking that that's going to uh, make things work. It's not going to work. But what he does is he begins to talk about God in the book, and he reminds people of God he reminds readers of God's goodness. We'll see that again in the next slide here. And he begins to bring God in so that people will know that they can trust him. And he does it pretty quickly. At the end of chapter 2, when his pursuits are completely have completely failed, for the first time he says, but there is God. This is what he wants you to do. Enjoy the gifts that he brings into your life. And it's advice of uh, trying to look at life differently and realize that God has been with them, giving them good gifts. Uh, it doesn't, life doesn't have to be filled with despair. So he begins by doing that after Solomon's pursuits don't work. And then in chapter three, when he says that life is against us, it's unmanageable, it's uh, unreliable, it's unfair, it's unpredictable, and his observations are correct. What he says about God immediately is this, he will make all things beautiful in his time. Remember that? He will make all things beautiful in his time. Very subtle message. God will not always leave you in despair. You will not always be where you are right now if you're down and out. God knows how to take care of you. The next phrase, God has put eternity in our hearts so that we know that he's there. We are to know that. We are to naturally go to God when we can't handle our world. But then he talks about gifts again. And immediately after talking about the problems of men being unfair, God, the Solomon just jumps right in. And and he lets people know that every person is accountable to God. And that's what he says. Remember, I said it this way. If the judge is not right, if he's not honest, if he's serving only himself, and he says, case dismissed, and it's not been handled right, God says, not yet. God holds every man accountable for their behavior. 
God is the one who has the final say in what happens in life. And when life is against us, God is much bigger than the difficulties that we face in life. When people have mistreated us and have hurt us, remember I talked about mourning and tears, and when people have been dishonest with us and hurt us, God knows that, and he tells us just hang in there, and in spite of the challenges that we're facing, God is still in control, and we need to trust him. And every time there is a problem in life, and we're thinking we're lost in despair, we are to be reminded that God is with us and that he is good. Now, if Solomon has done that in writing this book, it means that there are times that we need to stop and think about these things. We need to get a little booklet that tells us about the character of God. Nathan Stone is a man that wrote a book uh, on the names of God, very practical. There are all kinds of booklets and uh, things that are very helpful. Reading the Psalms and seeing the psalmist give God praise for his goodness, his wisdom, his majesty, his glory. There are psalms where the, the writer cries out to God for help, but there are psalms of praise and admiration. We need to learn that God is faithful no matter what. We need to have that so established in our life that when something happens that's difficult, it is our immediate instinct to say, God, I'll trust you for this. I don't understand it, but I'll trust you for it. We just need to go there quickly and from our hearts. And the things that we can do to keep our hearts close to God, learning about God will be of great help to us as, as we try to uh, navigate some of the things that happen in life. Notice this next one. Solomon has been telling us that we really can trust God. The anguish is there, but this underlying theme that he builds and builds and builds throughout the book, notice if you can read it on here, is that the hand, the goodness of God, is referred to four times. <clears throat> In spite of difficulty, God's hand can be with you. God gives things that God gives. Twelve times he references the fact that God has given these things. Joy is eight times and joyful portion from God seven times. And he's making it very clear that men can trust God for their lives. That's a decision that needs to be made on a regular basis. God, thank you that we're coming to the end of this year and you've taken care of us. I don't know what the next year is going to hold, but I'm going to trust you with it. We need to say that. We need to reaffirm this commitment, this trust, and make sure that dissatisfaction in life doesn't cause us to wander from God. If you want to do an interesting study on one chapter in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's written to a people who have come through the 40-year wandering wilderness as they were going to the promised land. <clears throat> and as it begins, 
and talks about hardships, that God allowed them to go through hardships in this 40-year period of wandering because he wanted to find out what was really in their hearts. He wanted to show them what was in their hearts. It reminds us today when we have difficulty, sometimes God wants us to see our hearts and he wants us to know what's in our heart. These are heart issues. God wants our heart, whether we will trust him. <clears throat> it also says, he reminds them of how he provided for them when they went through these hardships. God will provide for us when we go through our hardships. And then he gives them a glimpse into the future that will be theirs in the promised land. They'll have herds that they didn't raise. They'll have homes that uh, they didn't build, wells that they didn't uh, dig. They'll have fields. They'll have money. They'll have everything. And he's talking about the life that they are going to have when they move into the promised land. There's only one thing that he asks them not to do. It's really a great chapter, and this stands out. One thing don't do. Don't forget God. That's it. Don't forget God. God knew that if they came into the promised land and had everything ready for them, it would be very easy for them to forget and kind of pull back and just kind of go along in life without God and get in some real problems. And the message is true for us today. The greatest challenge that we have, we can't forget God. We can't allow ourselves to drift away from God. And so whatever we can do to make sure that our hearts keep close to God, uh, that's something that we need to do. And we need to teach our kids that too. So in the book of Anguish, uh, he talks about the barrenness of life without God, but he is always reminding them as they read and as they listen uh, that this is, uh, this is really uh, what they need to do. Stay close to God and trust him when life gets difficult. God can take care of his people. He really will. Now, the last thing. Understand where meaning and purpose are found. And I want to focus again on the area of the home. We looked at Psalm uh, 128. This is the way that God will bless the man that walks with him. He'll give him satisfaction in his work. He will bless him with his wife and the husband-wife relationship. Bless with children. Bless with this time around the table. And their home will have peace, a shalom. And it begins and ends by saying, this is the way that God will bless the man that walks with him. Psalm 128 is a picture of what Solomon is talking about. It's obvious. Uh, this is more than just a similarity. And in this book, if you can notice the screen that I have here, five times he encourages them to, it is his advice, Realize what God is doing for you right in your home. And in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 8. But in chapter 9, there is now a call to action. It's not advice. It's do something. Accept 
your home as the place of God's blessing. Settle in contentment. Realize that what you have are the gifts of God. He is providing for you. And in this closing section, what he does, I hope you can read this, is he points to specific areas of the home that he wants them to uh, accept and celebrate. Uh, make the home a happy place. And make your meal times good times. He kind of puts those together. And in our culture, I think that's pretty good advice since we're a fast food culture and we're running from one event to another. Uh, in the Jewish daily schedule, uh, people would get up in the first thing in the morning. Uh, most of the time they would be together in the home as they began their day. Uh, they would have a very light uh, breakfast uh, at noon at different places, people would have snacks, but very light. But the family would not gather until the end of day, the sun was going down, the work was done, and when they gathered at the home, it was all about them. The main focus at that point was the family. And nobody was in a hurry. They settled down around the table. You'll see that in Psalm 128. And that was the time they spent with each other, talking about themselves, their work, counseling, loving, encouraging, having all kinds of uh, good times. And that's what Solomon is portraying in these different places where he gives advice about realizing that this is God's gift to you see it that way and enjoy it, but also to uh, challenge them in chapter 9, just settle down, you know, be content. Don't always be looking out into the future. Uh, well, if I could get some more money, if I work another job, or if I, don't be so focused on the future that you miss being able to have what you need to have right now with your family. Uh, he talks about enjoying the spouse, enjoying your marriage which would mean, okay, hubby, uh, wifey, you know, how, what can you do to enjoy your marriage? What are the things that you can do to encourage your spouse? Uh, and again, be careful in the, in the world in which we live, there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there. Don't let dissatisfaction become a breeding ground for discontent where all you see are problems. Uh, you will not have a happy home if that's all you see. Get to know each of your kids. Get to enjoy each of your kids. Uh, help them to dream things. Uh, laugh. It talks about putting on white apparel. That was the, the garments that they used for celebrations, family celebrations or public celebrations. And it's a reminder that the families are to celebrate things whether it's a birthday, whether it's a special event. Uh, we had uh, one of our granddaughters up this last week before the snow came and uh, <clears throat> taking a break from school. She's in nursing and uh, uh, she just wanted to have some time with us and we wanted to spoil her. Uh, so she and Sarah, uh, when, they were, uh, when she was here, our granddaughter, they got 
busy in the kitchen. Uh, they made desserts, they made pastries, they made things that this granddaughter could take back and surprise her family. She wanted to do it for them. Just simple things, but enjoy your family, celebrate things, anything that's an accomplishment, uh, or just uh, being able to let a person know that you love them and that they have a safe home. Uh, I think the tragedy of our culture is that kids are growing up in such a way as that when it comes to meals, they'd rather be eating at the neighbor's place than at their own table. And that's not good. The other kids should want to be eating at your table. It's so much fun that they look forward to it. But it's, it doesn't bode well for our families all around us when, when the kids don't even want to be home or when mom and dad don't have personal connecting time and just living time. The Jewish people focused as a family on that period of time when the work was done and they just spent time with each other because they realized that family is everything. And you need to care for your family. You need to enjoy your family. Uh, it talks about men realizing that their work is really a gift from God. And going back to Deuteronomy 8, there's a phrase there, men, that I think is really nice to know. It says that, remember, it is God that gives you the power to get your income. God gives you the ability to get your income. So you're not getting your income because of your goodness or your skill in a sense, not entirely. God has enabled you, he's provided you, he's led you to that place. And he wants you to see that you can enjoy your work if you're providing for your family because he knows what it takes for you to provide for your family. Deuteronomy 8 is a great verse to see that God is the one who's a, who is really responsible for helping you with your income. And you can depend upon him for that. He also says that we are to enjoy peace with God. We should not have to look for things outside the home for meaning and purpose. We should be able to live with our homes in such a way that we are content and all that we need is right there in our relationships, uh, our provision, our interaction, seeing how God is caring for us, knowing that God is watching over our home, all of that's there. And so as we, as we come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there is an emphasis upon understanding where true meaning and purpose will be found. Uh, and again, Psalm 128 is perfect. If you want to get uh, on your computer and Google search um, commentary on Psalm 127 and 128 and just see from time to time what different people write about that, uh, it'll be an encouragement to your heart. In the Hebrew Bible, both of those Psalms are together. Uh, it means that they are to be read together. They both deal with the home, that God can take care of the home. Uh, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. God will help any home that turns to him. 
and He will care for them, and there's joy. And that's why Psalm 128 is, is really very Jewish. This is the way God blesses the man that walks with Him. And God's greatest treasures are found in the simplest of blessings. And, it's, and, and Solomon makes that very clear. People who are lost in a life without meaning have lost track of God. Let me say that again. People who are lost in life and have no sense of meaning are people who have lost sight of God and they've lost touch with God. And this book reminds us the most important thing we can do is to keep our hearts close to God. There will be trials and moments that are difficult, but we will never look at life and think that it is all awful not when we walk with God. Thank you for staying with us for this time. A very unusual book, but enjoy your blessings and enjoy just knowing that God is with you in your home and there isn't anything that happens in your home that God doesn't know about and He can't care for. And just try to think of some of the special blessings that will be coming your way because you will have a lot. You put God first, stay close to Him, and you will have a wonderful and meaningful life.